The text this morning is from Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. These are the words of God. Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which, that, which doth so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest ye be wearied and faint in your minds. Our gracious God, we thank you for this occasion where we can open our hearts before your opened word. I pray that your spirit would make the application. I pray we'd go from this place knowing exactly what you would have us do. We pray in the name of Jesus, the strong name of Jesus. Amen. I want to speak this morning about the meaning of joy, the context of joy, the function of joy, the way joy works in a Christian economy in a fallen world. When the Apostle Paul comes to describe the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5.22, he's doing that in a chapter. There are two lists there. There are the works of the flesh that are manifest, and it's all sorts of seedy uh, behaviors. And then he also has a contrasting list, the fruit of the Spirit. When he talks about the fruit of the Spirit, he uses the singular form of fruit. And then he goes on to list love, joy, peace, long-suffering, and so on. So instead of considering this as a list of disparate fruits, like apples, oranges, and bananas, perhaps we might consider the different graces listed as aspects or attributes of the one fruit of the Spirit's presence. In other words, this is not like a cluster of grapes where there's a love grape and a joy grape and a peace grape. You can't have one without the other. The whole thing comes together. Uh, If you have love, then you have peace. If you have peace, then you have joy. If you have joy, and so on. So we could consider this one fruit being the Spirit's presence and these different attributes being like redness or sweetness or crispness, crispness and so on. But one of the most distinctive features of the Spirit's presence is the grace of joy. I don't say it's the most important. Uh, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians that love is the most important. Uh, faith, hope, faith, hope, and love, and the greatest is love. So love is obviously the greatest. It's the, it's the, the greatest feature. But joy, I think, is perhaps the most obvious. Joy is the thing that stands out. If you come into a group of saints who are characterized, who are filled with the Spirit, who are characterized by walking with the Spirit, one of the first things you're going to notice is the cheerfulness, the joy, the exuberance. You're going to notice that first. Not the most important, but it is one of the tells. It's one of the things that you can see most quickly. And so consequently, it's a good thing to monitor. It's a good way of checking your heart. It's a good way of seeing how you're doing. So in this passage, in the 11th chapter of Hebrews, that's right before this, we were given a long list of Old Testament saints who had endured great trials, uh, Hebrews 11, 35 through 38, or who had overcome great trials and troubles, uh, 32 through 35. In other words, all of the saints in Hebrews 11 had big troubles. All of them had encountered problems, problems of an enormous magnitude. Some of them had, from a carnal, worldly standpoint, gone down uh, underneath those troubles. Others were victorious over those troubles. But all of them encountered those troubles. Some of them were sawn in two. 
Some of them had to live in caves. Some of them were persecuted, imprisoned, and so on. Others received their dead back to life. Others overcame armies, put armies to flight. So you have Jeremiah on the one hand, a weep, the weeping prophet, Jeremiah. You look at the, the outline of his life, what a wasted ministry that was, right? You see, you've got this awful ministry considered with a carnal calculus. And then you have King David who, has, who establishes a kingdom and he dies as an old man full of years. He, he, he um, had some failings in his life, but he, he makes it to the end of his life as a king. He, so, but all of them had troubles and all of them had grievous troubles. And all of them were set before us as examples of true faith to encourage us in the race that we have to run. The stadium is now filled with saints from the older covenant. And that's the image here. The stadium, all the saints who have run before us uh, have uh, competed, they've entered their events, they've finished their events, and now that they're done with their race, they fill the stadium up. And we're, we're running our race. We come to the starting line, ready to run our race, and we should be encouraged by their presence here. Their races are now complete, and it's now our turn to come to the starting line, which is what we have in verse 1. We are instructed to lay aside everything that might hinder us from that running, whether it's a weight or it's a sin, and then we're to run with endurance. So set aside the weight that might get in the way, set aside the sin that might get in the way. The weight would be something like your warm-up clothes. Take the sweats off. You know, um, get ready to run the race. That, it, that's just going to slow you down. Don't uh, mess with that. Lay aside the weight. And a sin might be a bad attitude toward your coach. You don't want to do what he says to do. You don't want to pay attention. So lay aside the sin. Lay aside the weight. And then run with endurance. Now this means that it's, it's not a sprint. This is not a 100-yard dash. This is a long race. Verse 1. And it's a lo- we know it's a long race because you have to run with endurance. You have, to, you have to pace yourself. Now, although chapter 11 is crammed with examples for us, now that we are running, we are to look principally to the supreme example, who is Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. That's in verse 2. So we are mindful of the others who have run before us, we pay attention to Gideon, we pay attention to Samson, we pay attention to David, we're, we're aware of their presence, but the one we're looking to, to really imitate, is the Lord Jesus. The Lord Jesus has also run his race. And Jesus ran his race in a particular way. He endured the cross, it says, holding the shame of it in contempt. And he is now seated on the throne of glory. He also has completed his race. So this passage tells us in two places, it tells us twice to look to Jesus Christ. Looking unto Jesus in verse 2, and it says, consider him that endured in verse 3. So we're to look to Jesus, we're to copy what he did, look to him, do what he did, and we are to consider him and we are to reflect on that. Otherwise, what's going to happen? If we don't consider how Christ endured such contradiction of sinners, as it says, we are going to get sucked down into our own pain, and then we are going to quit from exhaustion. It is easy to get sucked down into your own pain, because absolutely no one else understands what it is, right? And you're, you're the only one in there. You're the one feeling the pain. No one else is uh, coming around with 
solicitations or, or, or they try to and they say something ham-handed and dumb and you think to yourself, whether or not you say, but you think to yourself, you don't understand. Well, it's quite true that they don't understand your pain. You don't understand their pain. It's really easy if you get in your own head, if you get sucked into your own, if you're not looking to Jesus, if you're not looking to objective examples outside yourself, you are going to get sucked into your own pain, and then you're going to quit from exhaustion. That's what he says here. For consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest ye be wearied and faint in your minds. If you don't look to Jesus, you are going to run out. You're going to run out of gas. You're just going to give up. You are going to quit. So remember this, and this is the, the, this is the thing I want to come at from a number of different directions in this message. The context of Christian joy is exertion. The context of Christian joy is exertion. Christian joy is not a stress-free activity. Christian joy is uh, something that demands something from you. There is friction that pushes against you. You come against it, you've got to overcome something. And the nature of Christian joy is agonistic. It's a wrestling kind of joy. Christian joy is a wrestling kind of joy. It's agonistic. There's conflict involved. Spirit-driven joy is never lethargic. Basically, the the spirit-given joy is not the sort of thing that you can get from a meth lab or a distillery. It's not the sort of thing that you can get somebody to manufacture some ecstasy for you. That's That's not it. That's not it. Christian joy is in the midst of trial. It's in the midst of tumult. It's in the midst of tribulation. It's in the midst of affliction. And that's why we're told to imitate the Lord Jesus, right? The Lord Jesus, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame. Now, what is it that robs us of our joy? What is it that robs us of our joy? Our text says that in order to run the race effectively... This race that has joy at the end of it, we must lay aside sin and the weight that so easily entangles. One of the things that robs us of our ability to run with joy toward joy, we are to run with joy toward joy. One of the things that interrupts that is sin. This was certainly David's experience for day, this Psalm, 30, Psalm 32, verses 4 and 5. For day and night thy hand was heavy upon me. My moisture is turned into the drought of summer, Selah. I acknowledge my sin unto thee, and mine iniquity have I not hid. I said, I will confess my transgressions unto the Lord, and thou forgavest the iniquity of my sin, Selah. God spanks his children. God does not let his children get away with sin. Uh, as it says later in this chapter, we're told that, uh, that no discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. And God disciplines you. Why? Because you're his child. God doesn't spank the neighbor's kids. God spanks his own children. If he didn't spank you, if, he, if his hand was not heavy on you when you sinned, that would be a means of disowning you. And God does not disown his children. He doesn't let them go in their sin. If you belong to him and his hand is heavy on you, that's not a sign that he's abandoned you. That's a sign that he has not abandoned you. Uh, why, why did God treat David this way? When David was guilty of murder and adultery, why did God do this to him? Why was his hand heavy on him? Because he loved him. 
God loved David. David was a man after God's own heart. David had sinned and sinned grievously. And so God brought him to the point of repentance, brought him to the point where he was willing to set aside the sin so that he could run the race. Another major thief of joy, and this is particularly important for Reformed Christians to hear, another major thief of joy is poor doctrine, or in the case of Reformed theology, poor applications of good doctrine. Some people believe that because Reformed folk believe in total depravity, and we do, that this means that we must spend our time wallowing around in it. But you're not supposed to be wallowing around in it. You are Christians. You are saved. You're supposed to be delivered from it. We are, by nature, we are objects of wrath, just like the others. By nature, we are under God's judgment, just like the others. But God has saved us. And God has brought us into a place where he tells us repeatedly that we are to walk worthy of the calling that you've received. And we're supposed to walk in joy. We're supposed to stand upright. We're supposed to receive forgiveness. We're supposed to walk in a way that pleases God, which means that it's possible for you and you and everyone here to please God. It's possible to please him. Now, God is very, very hard to satisfy, but not very hard to please. He's very hard to satisfy because he's not anywhere close to being done with us. But he, is, he rejoices over every small bit of progress that you make. And if you think, if you think that you affirm total depravity, uh, you, and you've made the mistake of thinking that that means you have to blow bubbles in it, you have a wrong understanding. False teaching, misplaced teaching, is the thief of joy. Wrong teaching, misplaced teaching, is the thief of joy. In the NIV, it says this in Galatians 4, 15 and 16. What has happened to all your joy? What was the problem? The Galatians had begun to entertain legalistic teachers, teachers who said in order to be justified, you have to accept circumcision and you have to live according to the law. They, they came under the law and because they came under the law, all their joy evaporated because joy comes from the grace of God in Christ Jesus. If you are saved by grace, that liberates you into joy. So Paul says to the Galatians, because they were entertaining a false, false teaching, he says, what has happened to all your joy? I can testify that if you could have done so, you would have torn out your eyes and given them to me. Have I now become your enemy by telling you the truth? And so we want to lay aside sin. We want to lay aside false understandings of the gospel, false understandings of how the Bible describes our condition apart from Christ and how the Bible describes our battle, ongoing battle with remaining sin. Whatever it is, if it robs you of, of your joy, you're not understanding it. If you're not walking in joy, you don't understand what the Bible is offering you, what the Bible sets before you. One of the things we tend to think is we think of joy as sort of a, a carnival ride experience. You know, we. Um, that's not it. That kind of thing makes you throw up. <laughs> that's not it. What is joy? Joy is deep satisfaction with the will of God for your life as that will is expressed by him in the circumstances of your life. Let me say that again. Joy is deep satisfaction with the will of God for your life as that will is expressed by him in the circumstances of your life. That is what joy is. God, when he gave you what he gave you, did not screw it up. When God gave you your height, and your looks, and your intelligence, and your sex, and your family, when God gave you those things, that was not a mistake. 
It was not a mistake. It was perfect. And you might be tempted to think, well, had I been there advising him on his creation of me, I would have corrected a few things. I think, I think that he blundered in certain significant ways. But if, well, let's not go there. If you're such a mistake, then where do you get off? I am going there. If, you, if you're such a mistake, then where do you get off advising God? He's the creator of heaven and earth. He's almighty God. God knows what he's doing. And he does it perfectly. So, joy is deep satisfaction with what God has done. It says in Ephesians, always and for everything, always, not just in everything. It says that in 1 Thessalonians 5.18, in everything you're supposed to be giving thanks. But it's not just in everything, it's for everything. Always and for everything, giving thanks. We give thanks to God because God knows what he's doing. But it should, be, it should become instantly obvious that this joy, this deep satisfaction with what God's up to, is not a happy, happy, joy, joy thing. It's not froth and bubble on the surface of your life. Joy is the bedrock down beneath the soil in which all your experiences grow. And the bedrock doesn't move regardless of what's happening up above. The plants are growing up above, it's raining on it, or it's snowing, or the sun is beating down on the soil. The plants are doing all sorts of different things, but the bedrock is just there. That bedrock is to be your joy. You, you are to live on bedrock joy. The bedrock doesn't move, regardless of what's happening. Think of David. David, interceding for the life of his son. David had committed adultery. David had committed murder. And then Bathsheba had conceived and their son was sick and was sick for a week before he died. David interceded for the life of his son while he was dying. While his son was dying, David lay fasting and praying for that week. When his son died, he got up, washed, changed his clothes, and went to worship the Lord. That's 2 Samuel 12, 20. What is that? That is Job's response. The Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. The Lord has said no to my request. And now that he said no to my request, I'm going to exhibit deep satisfaction in the will of God as he has dispensed it into my life. So David gets up and he receives what God has apportioned to him. That is consistent with joy. Now, I want to, I want to share a couple of passage, passages with you that give us this uh, really striking juxtaposition of turmoil and joy. Um, because if, if, you, if you think that, uh, that joy is this carnival ride, good time, and everything's happy, just like a cocktail party or a kid's birthday party, and everybody's laughing all the time, and that's all it is. If that's what you think joy is, then you're going to have a hard time reconciling that with what actually goes on in your life on, on that particular Tuesday or that particular Thursday or Friday. So here's, here's Paul in 2 Corinthians 6, verses 4 through 10. And I want you to notice what, how much is going on. What is actually going on in Paul's life here? He says, But in all things, approving ourselves as the ministers of God, in much patience, in afflictions, in necessities, in distresses, in stripes, in imprisonments, in tumults, in labors, in watchings, in fastings, 
by pureness, by knowledge, by long-suffering, by kindness, by the Holy Ghost, by love unfeigned, by the word of truth, by the power of God, by the armor of righteousness on the right hand and on the left, by honor and dishonor, by evil report and good report, as deceivers and yet true, as unknown yet well-known, as dying and behold we live, as chastened and not killed, and here it is, here's the cash value, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing. As sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. As poor, yet making many rich. As having nothing, and yet possessing all things. What's going on here? As sorrowful and always rejoicing. The Christian faith is not stoicism. Christian faith is not stoicism. And it, neither is it, uh, 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 hedonism, neither is it a, a hedonism that, that follows the, the way of Epicurus. It's not... Okay, I just want pleasure all the time. Neither is it uh, a radical indifference to pain and pleasure. Like one Stoic philosopher said that it's a matter whether I'm experiencing pain or pleasure is as, a, uh, as indifferent to me as whether the number of hairs on my head are odd or even. I don't care. I don't care if it's rain. I don't, I don't care if it's pain. I don't care if it's pleasure. That's Stoicism. That's not Christianity. When, when Paul is going through all these things, you know, let's say these riots, these labors, these strifes, when he's being flogged, do you think he notices? Yes, of course he notices. He, the way he describes it shows us how acutely he feels these things. And then he comes to this, the pinnacle of his, his statement as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. There is a Holy Ghost joy that is consistent with this kind of life, this kind of eventful life with good things and bad things, both of them, Flying by you, thrown at you, sorrowful yet always rejoicing. Peter gives us something very similar, a very similar juxtaposition in 1 Peter 1, starting at verse 6. I want you to notice, wherein ye greatly rejoice, all right, so there it is, joy, wherein ye greatly rejoice, though now for a season, if need be, ye are in heaviness, through manifold temptations. You are in heaviness through manifold temptations, but what are you doing? Greatly rejoicing. That the trial of your faith, being much more precious than of gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ, whom, having not seen, ye love, in whom, though now ye see him not, yet believing, ye rejoice with joy unspeakable, and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, even the salvation of your souls. Now, what's going on there? Great rejoicing, heaviness, manifold temptations, trial of your faith. God, God considers you gold, and so he throws you into the cauldron to burn off the impurities. That's what's going on. Fire that's brought to you. God is dealing with you, and he's dealing with you the way a smith would deal with precious gold. And you understand that you're in the middle of a process. You understand that you're in the middle of the process. If you had to understand affliction, trial, pain, independent of the process, it's inexplicable. If you just have people lined up, believers and unbelievers, and God sticks pins in all of them. You're a believer, I'm going to stick the number of pins in you, and you're an unbeliever, I'm going to stick pins in you. And the Christians are the ones who feel the pain but have to like it. That's not, that's not it. It's not that we have to like the pain as just as a standalone thing, what do we understand? 
receiving the end of your faith, even the salvation of your souls. Go back to the example of Jesus who's running the race. He endured the cross, despising the shame, who for the joy that was set before him. He was in a process. He was in a story. There was a trajectory. There was a narrative arc. And he understood that there was an end result that we're that he was going for, the joy that was set before him. Why do you, and, and this is something we understand on, ordin, on an ordinary level. We understand it with athletics. We understand it with someone who wants to be an Olympic athlete or someone who wants to be a concert pianist or someone. We understand that there's a lot of discipline, a lot of pain, a lot of practice, and there are times when you have to go do whatever it is and you don't feel like it. Why? What, so is, is it easy for us if we get sucked into our own immediate experience? Is it easy for a high school boy who went out for the football team to start thinking that he, the coach must be a, a sadist for doing this to us because the whole thing seems point, pointless. We just ran a suicide. Why another suicide? Why now? Because, what, and, and I must be a masochist for putting up with it. But if you understand the story, you understand that practices are linked to the game and the game is linked to the championship after a series of games. You understand that there's something at the end, the peaceful fruit, as it says later, later in Hebrews 12, no discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful, but afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of an upright life. So you, under, you have to understand this as a process. This is not, a, you don't judge your pain, you don't judge your affliction, you don't dr- judge your trial by the snapshot, you must judge it by the video. You, there's a process. It's an hour and a half. You're looking the, look at the whole thing. You don't just take a snapshot and say, my life is terrible because this just happened. Look at this. This is a terrible thing. That's judging by the snapshot. No one, no one should think that God is incompetent. If God is incompetent, we're all, everything's, you know, what are we going to do? Where are we going to hide? But God is competent. God is almighty. He's all wise. He knows everything is exquisitely done. One greater than Solomon is here. Jesus says that in Matthew 12, 42. One greater than Solomon is here. And what happened when Solomon was crowned king? Joab, who was a conspirator on the other side, uh, there, there was a jockeying for position, who's going, to, who's going to be the king after David dies. Joab was a conspirator on the other side, and Joab was provoked to ask, wherefore is this noise of the city being in an uproar? That's in 1 Kings 1, 41. Solomon had been crowned in Gihon, and everybody came up from there rejoicing, it says in verse 45. The tumult that Joab and his companions heard was the tumult of a turbulent joy. But it But this is the important thing. It was tumultuous joy in a nation on the verge of civil war. This was tumultuous joy in a nation on the brink. This was the nation on the brink. And when Solomon's crowned king, the people erupted with joy. So joy is not just what we fight for. It should also be considered as a weapon that we fight with. We are grateful. We, if we have the big picture, if we, if we understand the prize, if we know what we're going for, that informs, that sheds light on everything that we're doing. Remember Jesus for the joy that was before him. It wasn't immediate joy. At the same time, 
when he was on the verge of going to the cross, what did he do at the Last Supper? He took the bread, and he picked up the bread, and he said, this bread is my body, and he broke it. My body, he broke. My body, and he broke it, and he gave thanks. This is my body, and he broke it, and he thanked God. That is what it means to run the race with endurance, setting your eye on the joy that is set before you. So it's not just what you fight for, it's what you fight with. We are alive in a perilous time. We are engaged in a very real struggle for the future of our nation and the future of our civilization. We are fighting, and we are fighting, to ward off terrible consequences for our people. And we intend to have a good time doing it. This is what we are called to. We are, not, we are not supposed to be gloomy and sour. So when we say that we intend to have a good time doing it, it's not because we don't know the stakes, but rather because we do know the stakes. We are to be serious Christians, which is not the same thing as being gloomy and depressed Christians. Serious Christians can know the stakes, and they know the battle they're in, they know the affliction, and they know the joy. The former is consistent with joy, but gloomy and depressed Christianity doesn't understand what's actually going on. If we understand what God is doing, if we understand the purpose and direction, trajectory of the kingdom in this world, we can collide with everything that comes at us with joy. This is why, this is why, it's, James is not being incoherent. He's not saying be a masochist when you can count it all joy. He says when you meet with various trials. You see another trial coming, what do you say? Well, he said count it all joy when you meet with various trials. It makes no sense if it's just a, uh, if it's not, uh, another wave of pointless pain. God, that, would, that would, would be masochistic, and God wouldn't tell us to do that. We count it all joy when we meet various trials because when you graduate from seventh grade, which was very, very hard for you, you know what your reward is? Eighth grade. <laughs> I struggled and I struggled and I struggled, and then what happened? They're going to do it to me again, only worse. And then ninth grade. And then, it, it, and it, you know what? It never stops. You're going to be an old Christian, and you're going to be looking, at, and you say to your wife, you know, in just three more weeks, I'm going to be 70, or just three more weeks, I'll be 80, and then all my trials will cease. <laughs> no, no you, run to the, you run to the finish line. You run to the tape. We're to be serious Christians, which is not gloomy, it's not depressed, and being a serious Christian is consistent with bedrock joy. Christ was crowned at his ascension, and he was given universal authority. And we are the people who meet weekly to acclaim him as our king. That is what we're doing here, is it not? And that is why the hallmark of evangelical, reformed, post-millennial, Kyperian, covenantal faith is also here. What is that mark? Is it not cheerfulness? Is it not joy? And if it's not cheerful, if it's not joyful, then whatever it is, it's not the things that you say that you believe in the confession of faith. If we believe that God is sovereign, if we believe that the kingdom is going to overcome, if we believe that God saves sinners independent of them having to agree to it beforehand, if we believe that God keeps covenant to a thousand generations, if we believe all those things, then why on earth, why on earth would we not 
be characterized by exuberant, serious joy. How could we be looking toward Jesus, the one who ran his race, looking toward the joy that was set before him, without ourselves looking toward joy? That is entailed necessarily in our imitation of Christ. This is what we're called to. We're Christians. We follow Christ. We look to him. We imitate him. We do what he did. So Jesus ran the race looking forward to joy. We have to do the same. And so this is the life of a true Christian, further up and further in. Our gracious God, we thank you for your kindness to us. We thank you for this gospel. We thank you for this word. We thank you for the spirit that is given to us so that we might rejoice in these lives of ours. Father, we commit it all to you, knowing that if you don't sustain us, if you don't preserve us, if you don't protect us, we can't do it ourselves. And we look to you, asking you to keep us the way you've promised. Father, as we pray, we would lift up to you the words that Jesus taught us to pray, saying, We are fast approaching the season where we gather with friends and family for much holiday feasting. The all-too-typical disposition in our society towards these gatherings is a sort of foreboding dread that so-and-so will bring up the topic of such-and-such. The American way in this regard is to have our holiday feasts with side dishes of resentments, offenses, rivalries, and envies hidden in plain sight. Instead of dealing with root matters, we dance around delicate topics like expert break dancers. Avoid that topic of conversation. Don't irritate Aunt Clarice. For pity's sake, don't mention that political issue. God's feast stands in stark contrast. This board sets the model for how we should arrange our feasting boards. God invites us here despite the fact that he knows what you did last week. He knows all your grumbles, all your sneaking sins, all the worst things about you that nobody else knows. He knows it all and forgets it all. But it gets even better. He forgets our sin and our sinful nature. As the Heidelberg Catechism reminds us, I believe that God, because of Christ's satisfaction, will no more remember my sins, nor my sinful nature. It isn't merely that he invites murderers, adulterers, liars, thieves, and blasphemers to his feast. We can wrap our head around God forgiving those sins, even the fact that he won't remember them against us. What's staggering is that he views you not as a criminal whose crimes have been pardoned by the court, but he's still going to keep an eye on the silverware. Rather, he brings you in as his own child. He sees you as you are, in fact, righteous. No spot, no stain, no crimes or criminal record to speak of. This is a feast of God's forgetfulness. So arrange your holiday feasts in imitation of his forgiveness towards you. Forgive and forget and then fellowship. So come in faith and welcome to Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we thank you that you spread before us in this bread and this wine, the broken body and poured out blood of our Lord and Savior Jesus, and that in this promise is that our sins are covered and you count us as righteous, you count us as saints, you count us as beloved children. We give thanks for it all in Jesus' name, and amen. This is the charge. You are in a race. Every last one of you is in a race, and you, you are instructed by the Word of God to run it as though it were a marathon. Do not uh, try to impress God with fits and spasms of dashes here and there. Just one thing, the right, the, the, do the next right thing, and do the next right thing, as one phrase has it, a long obedience in the same direction.
Receive now with believing hearts God's God's benediction for you. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy to God our Savior, who alone is wise, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forever. Amen.